Welcome back to the Path of Longevity show, and I'm your host, Dr. Robert Lufkin, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Stephen Sidoroff. Today, we get to cover a wide range of topics around the science and economics of infectious disease and aging. Our guest today is Dr. Tim Peterson, who's assistant professor at Washington University School of Medicine. His focus on longevity has led him to study metformin and rapamycin and the mTOR pathway, arguably the most validated longevity pathway known. We'll also hear about some innovative strategies using the blockchain to facilitate longevity drug development. And now, please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Tim Peterson. Hey, Tim, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, so good to have you on the on the on this session today. Um, and there's there's so many exciting things I want to talk to you about. But before we start, maybe you could just take a moment and tell us how you became so interested in longevity and kind of how you got to where you are today. Yeah, so I um I've always been an athlete. That's maybe somewhat of a common way for people kind of get interested in their health. Um, and then you know through just training in school, I was. I was in both uh, MD and PhD programs. I just stuck with the PhD because I was so into being in the lab. And then um, particularly in the longevity, we were studying the mTOR pathway, which is, you know, one of the kind of more prominent pathways in longevity. Um, so, but that was, I mean, I think it was in the early 2000s, early to mid 2000s. So um, it really wasn't, I don't think we really even knew that we were studying longevity. Like the first paper I was part of where we, had aging in the title it was like 2010 so i think it's kind of the first time where we were like oh, oh we're actually studying aging here so um so yeah that was how i, I got into the space and i think because i was studying M mTOR um you know the drug rapamycin was you know obviously always been uh key to that space and so just really got interested in um uh, you know drug development as a result of that and so studied metformin and and other drugs uh, since that time. And so um, leverage that to, to stay in academia. So I'm a assistant professor at Washington University, St. Louis School of Medicine. And, um, but in the course of um, work there, um, have been able to launch two companies in this space, one Healthspan Technologies and then one BioIO. Um, the, the former is focusing on um, RNA th therapeutics or making vaccines and gene therapies. Um, and then uh, the other one's a, uh, BioIO is a small molecule company. And focusing on um it's kind of we're taking a target target id approach so yeah yeah before we we dive in maybe let's take a moment and tell us a little bit about how you look at aging and longevity and you know why do we age uh what causes it because everybody seems to have a little bit different view about this definitely so i mean i think the thing what it's really stuck with me is this kind of Gompert's law was this, this thought that, you know, essentially right, aging, aging and, and death is inevitable in this kind of mathematical formula that the probability of death is exponential. And so the, what, the reason that was important to me um, is it, it, it comes from really, I think how drug development is done these days and how I've realized drug development these days. So what we can kind of go in with like, you know, there's this whole rational um, drug design uh, school of thought, right? Where you have to like know the target, you know, that's, and you have to hit the drug with a high specific, or sorry, hit the target with high specific drug. And, and that's really dominated a lot of, um, you know, that's basically, that's all pharma, right? These days. And and so 
I think that's, you know, largely not going to work because, you know, aging is this, you know, again, it's this inevitable thing. It's a exponential curve. And so exponents involve multiplication. So it's really at, at a kind of fundamental level, we have multiple things basically compounding upon each other to lead to, you know, lead to our mortality. And so I think we're, you know, doing one, you know, we're, we're coming with one agent, even if it's mTOR, even if it's, you know, you know, NED or whatever, that's, I think there's, you know, there's no chance that's going to work. And we see that with them with a lot of the drugs we come in, you know, come in and, you know, they have a 10 or 20% effect, you know, a lot of the cancer drugs and those kind of things um, and, and diabetes drugs and whatever. And, you know, 10 or 20% is not going to cut it. Um, and so I really think we have to, so kind of the prevailing view that, and that guides all, all, you know, my company activity and my academic work is really thinking of, how we can come in kind of with a multiplicative, I, I like to call them a kind of multiplicative therapies where things where you're, you're putting multiple things together um, and they're having a synergistic effect to kind of, um, you know, do something important. And I think the really this, the fundamental example right now of that is this reprogram in this Yamanaka um, cocktail of, of factors, right? It took four factors to do something profound, right? To, to reprogram a fibroblast or an embryonic cell, which could then go on and make, you know, every cell type. So I really think, you know, there's several companies in this space which are doing reprogramming. Um, and the common thing there is they're taking, you know, whether it's chemicals or, or mRNAs or whatever, um, they're coming in with multiple factors to do something important. And I think that's really the way drug development should be, should, um, should um, you know, progress. Because like even rapamycin, the very best case scenario we have right now, if you look in all the animal studies, it's a 10 or 20% lifespan extension effect. And then of course that will fall apart when it comes to humans. So, um, so um, where, where, you know, animals are all, um, uh, you know, they're all, um, uh, you know, the same, uh, the genetically identical. So you're, there's no, the variability there is, is, doesn't exist. And so that's how you can get these 10 or 20% um, lifespan extension effects. But in humans, right, we're, we're diverse. And so those, those gains will be lost. And so, um, I mean, there'll be maybe some effects, you know, I'm hopeful that um, Dudley Lamming and others at, you know, like Wisconsin will be, you know, showing something um, valuable, but I think it's just, it's unlikely to be this kind of, you know, escape velocity that people talk about where we're living, you know, another hundred years or whatever. I think we're really going to need multiple therapies to do that. Things that are, you know, highly synergistic and profoundly, you know, affect our physiology. Yeah. And so after having worked on, on rapamycin and, and yeah. metformin, you mentioned as well, yeah. you feel, I would assume you feel the same way about metformin that it's. A, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, metformin is metformin. I think is it, the data doesn't look as strong as that. And, you know, I think there's obviously, you know, it's a little bit like, well, it's not Democrat Republican, but it's, it's a little bit like where people definitely have their horse. Um, you know, I think they're both, really interesting drugs, mechanistically very interesting. Um, so the science is very cool. You know, both should kind of work. But I mean, I think it looks like the data on rapamycin is kind of clearly better. But again, I think both drugs are going to ultimately have very marginal effect. Um, and um, as, you know, as do most drugs, I mean, even like we're still debating whether statins are useful or not, right? So, I mean, I think, again, these kind of single, single you know, um, t- targeted agents you know, even in the best case scenario are going to be, have some kind of marginal effect, you know, equivocal effect. And so I really think we have to be moving outside that, that dogma. And, you know, the ALS drug that just recently came out, it has two components. Um, and, um, you know, you know, I'm not sure that data will be much better, but it's, you know, again, I think that's the start of the, the type of thinking we need to have. So. Yeah. Yeah. The idea of taking a single pill for, uh, 
for anything. No, it doesn't work for chronic disease. Um, exactly. Chronic I mean, disease. Exactly. Most chronic disease are multi, you know, multifactorial, right? They're, you know, polygenic, you know, you, you know, targeting one pathway. It's just the whack-a-mole thing where you plug one hole and then, you know, a new hole emerges, right? So, um, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, yeah. the, the the work you're doing on infectious uh, disease and aging mm-hmm. is is interesting because yep. it's, it's, it's an area that is, is not often covered. So maybe... Maybe you could just start off a little bit and for the non-scientists in the audience, talk about uh, some things like cell senescence, senolytics, mm-hmm. and how those interact with, with pathogens and how how infectious disease is tied to longevity. Yeah. So maybe I'll just, I mean, to backtrack with a very high level thought that, you know, really our ability to fight off pathogens is how life expectancy has grown throughout, you know, throughout human history, right? Of course, starting with like hygiene efforts and then, you know, um, sanitation and then, you know, antibiotics and then vaccines. I mean, really, if you want to look at life expectancy gains, it hasn't been through modern medicine. It's been through, it's basically been through, you know, very simple public health measures um, and serendipity in the case of antibiotics um, um, that, you know, that we've been able to live longer. Right. So, um, so, and then you see now with COVID, right. You know, come along and, and actually reduce the life expectancy in the U S by a couple of years, you know, it's clear that, you know, that's a major drive. And now it's the, you know, number, well, I think it's slightly behind heart disease, but it's, um, you know, it's a major, you know, now new, new cause of mortality. So I think we're just kind of ignoring the influence. Uh, there's just been not a really strong, um, emphasis on um on uh infectious disease and it's kind of baffling. i mean i think it's, you know probably just again can't mon- make money on it it's not a you know it's not some new fancy gene that somebody's making a drug to um you know there's just kind of a lot of reasons um um you know whereas all you know like the alzheimer's field i think has been interesting right because there's a lot of data emerging that pathogens um there's like a really cool science transitional medicine study that said that Salmonella, um, the basically the, the amyloid protein is basically um it's basically a trash trash man essentially. It's like taking out, it's like it's like fending off the pathogens that it's exposed to. So actually the thought that you'd want to be clearing the amyloid protein is like the exact opposite of what you'd want to be doing. Like it's actually trying to help and and so um you know against against pathogens um that are oddly in our brain. And, um, so I think there's some, you know, some, yeah, there's just been kind of a lot of, not a lot of, um, it's just been ignored for reasons which are not clear, but of course now with COVID, I think people are, um, and long COVID, I think people are more clued into the connections with infectious disease and aging. And then as far as like the senescence, um, so cell senescence is this concept where, um, you know, over time as our bodies, um, as, as we age, our bodies accumulate these cells, which are senescent. So they're not no longer dividing, um, like as opposed to like our stem cells, which kind of are dividing all the time and producing more, you know, healthy cells that help us do, you know, what our bodies do. The senescent cells are cells that essentially have stopped dividing and they, instead of being helpful, they crank out a lot of cytokines and other, other kind of things that are, um, essentially kind of dumping kind of toxic waste on our body. So, I mean, it's not totally accurate, um, but there's, that's kind of the paradigm. And so, um, there's many reasons why cells become senescent, but again, like a very kind of underappreciated reason is that, um, you know, pathogens come along and, you know, they, they kind of stress, stress the cells. They're kind of a, um, a, um, 
they're just just another stress, just like you know, you EV damage or or you know, metabolic stress from you know eating too much and or or whatever, or um uh, oncogene stress, um, those things are more known. They're just, you know, a big stress on the cell physiology, and that can can lead to the this the senescence as a kind of a coping strategy to basically um, you know, not um you know, I mean, it's really an anti-tumor mechanism to to prevent um, you know, cells from kind of becoming um uh, you know, becoming tumors. So, um, but on the other hand, yeah, they become, you don't get tumors, but then you get these senescent cells. And so, um, you know, our, our work, um, um, we did some, some genome wide screens and, and found some, some compounds, which, uh, which, uh, um, seem specifically useful in the context of pathogen induced senescence. And so that's, uh, that's work we're doing at my company, BioIO. So, um, and, and several kind of several initiatives there on, on those, on those classic compounds. So, yeah, it's it's interesting the the, the points you make that um, infectious disease is not just like getting sick with pneumonia and dying, but as you say, with with Alzheimer's, peach gingivalis, or you know Lyme yeah. disease, mold, yeah. uh, all these yeah. things that can give you dementia and yep. and essentially clinically identical Alzheimer's disease is 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 fascinating and and you mentioned all the oncogenes. It's amazing the number of of um uh infectious diseases that can drive cancer uh that we're you know that we're finding now that uh you know cancer can be transmitted with these these infections and all and it's almost like the um infectious disease is closely linked with longevity like you say for the re- for the reasons with the senescence and all and what what's your take? I mean, as as a rapamycin um, investigator with Joan Mannix, work with the rapalogs and the immune, mm-hmm. you know, her classic work back then. I mean, just turning down mTOR is that going to be, uh, you know, to dial down senescence uh, with rapamycin or something else? Is that going to be the way? Uh, I think it could be. I mean, I think it seems like the issue in in, in talking to people, I've, you know, been in the mTOR field for a long time, but I'm certainly no expert like, um, um, you know, today. Um, so it's, but it's from talking to the other experts, you know, Dudley and others, um, it seems like, um, you know, it's really going to be about the dose and, you know, maybe some people, um, you know, basically whether or not you're getting kind of immune protection versus immune suppression, I think, you know, could be heavily dependent on the the dose, you know, how much, how much rapamycin you're getting. And this drug is famously, um, you know, highly potent, right? It's it binds at very high affinity through FKB12 to, to mTOR and, 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 um, you know, it's not a full inhibitor, but you just don't need much of it. I mean, it's really extremely potent. So, um, um, yeah, um, so I think hopefully we'll just be kind of microdosing arachnomycin and then, yeah, maybe the rapalogs may work better. Um, I'm again, I'm not totally up to date with that, but you can imagine, of course, different rapalogs being kind of slightly better on the immune profile, slightly less on the metabolic liabilities. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, I mean, I think we're all going to start. I mean, I talked with this kind of multiple of therapies where we come in with these combination therapies, you know, reprogramming. Those are, of course, going to take a while. So I definitely am hopeful that, you know, various rap, rapamycin, rapamycin analogs will be kind of the first wave that will achieve kind of broad adoption. Um, and I'd definitely be keen to, to, to try it. I mean, not, I'm not taking any of them currently or, or metformin currently, but if, you know, data came out and said, oh, you know, as long as we keep the dose low, you know, you get kind of all the benefits without, you know, a, a you know, low chance of the risk. Um, yeah, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, like, yeah, it's hard to say because, I mean, I think, you know, I'm, 
45. And so it's like, I'm healthy. It's, I mean, I think the question is like, okay, do you start it when you're healthy? Do you start it when you start to kind of, you know, for you know some of your biomarkers start to go off a little bit? It's hard to know. I mean, I think it's, um, yeah, I think it's going to be hard for all to, to figure out. So, yeah. I mean, what do you think the biomarkers will be for a drug like rapamycin? I mean, other than obvious, you know, glucose going up that you, you don't want, but but yeah. what are the biomarkers for, for longevity you think that are most promising? Because that's a big challenge, isn't it? Uh, I know. Taking it, any of these drugs. Yeah. And like near Barzillai, right, is like he's trying to push the metformin tame trial. And I think, you know, do multiple biomarkers, you know, a lot of them kind of molecular. I'm pretty optimistic, you know, having having, you know, I have an Apple watch and I Apple uh, iPhone and the Apple uh, health app is really informative. I mean, it has all these gait measurements and has some, you know, heart rate variability. Um and those things definitely, uh, so like over the last year or so, I've actually done, um, I really didn't do any strength training. And then over the last year or so, I mean, my gait has significantly improved. improved. Um, and even though I'm not like doing anything gait specific, I'm just doing, um, like again, more kind of strength training. But I think that's kind of um, having some neuromuscular benefits that um, are, you know, it's not saying I'm younger, but it is it is a measure, right? So I do think... Um, I do think, I guess, probably more digital pr- things will come out, um, you know, uh, not just through, I know all the big tech companies are interested in that stuff. And of course, the other reason those are great is because they're consumer products. Like you don't have to go to the hospital, you don't have to do a blood draw. So I'm pretty bullish on digital biomarkers, you know, whether the FDA will, you know, approve them on, on some, you know, time frame, probably doubtful. But I, I'm kind of bullish on the thought that a lot of the, um, uh, a lot of the medical stuff will actually be probably not, I mean, it'll first come outside of the hospital system. I know like, it seems like Apple is really, and Amazon and stuff like this are really trying to make inroads in ways that probably we can't appreciate. And I do think like the hospital systems will be maybe the last to know. I mean, they'll just, there'll be, there'll be a lot of digital things that happen. And then, um, yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. The convergence of the tech and the digital health, the AI stuff, and then like the kind of bread and butter hospital base, you know, bi- molecular biomarkers and those types of things. I think there's going to be a somewhat of a battle between those at some point. So does that, yeah. that make any sense? I'm not sure that made yeah, sense. Yeah, you- no, I mean, yeah, yeah. it's, it's uh, more is better with the, with the digital information. Hopefully the Apple yeah. watch, the Google watch will have the Ramon spectroscopy for the glucose. Yeah. And I, Yep. I just saw yep. a, a Chinese company that has a glucose monitoring watch for a hundred dollars. Yep. Uh, and exactly. For exactly. To, yeah. You know, and see, I know like how it can, works. Um, yeah. And like you can, you know, optometry officers are getting these kind of retinal scanning for, it's not just for uh, diabetic retinopathy, right? It can, the, the quality of, you know, the visual quality of your retina can indicate all kinds of issues. I mean, and so people are working on the AI to, to do that prediction. And of course it's just a snapshot of your eye. Right. And so you don't, again, and having an optometry office, um, don't need anything. I mean, of course you need a, you need the medical system if there's a real problem, but to do the initial kind of quick diagnosis, I do think a lot of will move outside of the traditional system and, um, more. Yeah. So we'll see. I mean, yeah. They're probably mental markers for resilience. Aren't there Steve that, uh, could play a role in that as well? Well, it's interesting as you're talking about infectious disease and 
how you see that as an important playing an important role. And so from my perspective, stress plays a significant role in immune system functioning. Have you considered that aspect of it? De- definitely. I mean, I think it's, I mean, I don't have any specific, like, there's not really any science, but certainly, um, I think, you know, insults, uh, you know, stress, you know, not sleeping and, 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 uh, poor diets and, and, you know, um, other environmental stress, poor, poor ventilation in your house, you know, all those things are really, um, I mean, they're pretty basic, but at some level, a lot of people aren't, you know, really aware that they need to manage those. Like just from like, I know it's just, you never, as a scientist, you want to, you don't want to be anecdote driven, but like I was, uh, you know, I, I was triple vaxxed, but then it got, they got COVID. Fortunately, it was a very mild case, but basically it happened. I really don't know when my family got it. And I think I was the one who got it be, and, and like even had any symptoms because I hadn't slept like three nights in a row. Like I had huge deadlines for work and like that third night, I just was so worn out basically. And then I started to get the COVID symptoms and, and nobody in my family did. So again, just an anecdote, but I do think the stress you know, put me over into the symptomatic category. Um, so, and I do think, yeah, just in general, those stresses compound. Um, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, we, I just, uh, we certainly, we certainly see a growing percentage or number of people with chronic uh, illnesses in our country. Yep. For sure. Yeah, just, For sure. Just, just came across a paper this morning. We'll put it in the show notes, but it's about, uh, it's a large cohort of patients and they looked at psychological uh, stressors and they calculated biological age and and the psychological stressors had a greater impact on biological age than the smoking history than tobacco use which was definitely which was interesting so we've got a lot to learn yeah oh you saw that yeah yeah Uh, i know i mean i think that yeah they're just not you know those types of things are not considered kind of first class you know, uh, stressors, right. They're kind of like, Oh, you know, whatever. But I mean, it's, you know, yeah, I, I think we do need more emphasis on those kind of things. Yeah. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Well, well, going from, going from diagnosis back to therapy a little bit, yeah, sure. could, you t- yeah. could you talk a little bit about RNA therapeutics? What yeah. are they? What's the future hold? Where are we now? Yeah, yeah. So there, I mean, there's a lot of amazing developments, you know, of course, the the vaccine, you know, was an mRNA based um, strategy. Um, so just if you're not familiar, is the spike protein is a protein in the coronavirus that basically binds to the ACE2 protein on our cells. And that interaction is what's required to get the virus inside our cells and then cause all the damage. So the vaccine essentially um, is an mRNA to the spike protein such that um, basically our bodies make the spike protein and then our immune system, particularly the antibodies um, that get generated, can recognize that spike protein and then and then essentially block. Uh, so it's just the spike protein, not the virus itself. It's just the spike protein. And so you kind of it's kind of a decoy um, to, to trigger our immune system to to. Uh, to, um, you know, to fight off the coronavirus. So, um, it's not perfect, but it's, you know, it's a, it is a, you know, it is a provides the, the filter that would, uh, allow us to, you know, in, in many cases to, to survive, um, being infected from, from coronavirus. So, um, there's, so essentially the RNA approaches are ways to do kind of gene therapy. And I know like people get scared if you say it's gene therapy, in this case, it's like a viral protein. It's not one of our proteins that we're manipulating, 
but I mean, it's, it's ultimately what's so great about it is just because it's um, traditional drugs are just are usually like what we call small molecule drugs. And they're just teeny little things, much smaller than the proteins and things that they're trying to bind to. So there's just a lack of specificity there. Whereas with RNA therapeutics or nucleic acid-based therapeutics, they're um, like the the just specificity of the drug is much better. Yeah, again, the spike protein comes along and uh, the antibodies that get made to it are very selective just for that protein. They do nothing else in the body. So unlike a lot of the other drugs that we take where they're kind of, you know, uh, non-specifically, you know, blocking a lot of stuff. Um, and so that's, they get, they're very kind of side effect prone. So, so the, the, I think, you know, the, the whole idea really came to fruition, um, um, and came to the widespread public attention with the COVID vaccine, but there's other, there's been other efforts over the last, you know, several decades, which also are really, um, coming to head now. So Alnylam is a company that has siRNA based therapeutics, um, I think mainly for cancer, um, but some other diseases as well. And and so those um, strategies often um, are knocking down a gene. So there's a gene that's bad in some kind of disease context. And um, in this case, the siRNA is something that basically recognizes the the normal RNA and downregulates that the the bad basically the bad protein and then will downregulate that um, downregulate that. Uh, that gene such that it's, you know, less likely to cause disease. Um, there's other approaches um, involving CRISPR, which probably people have heard of, which is a gene editing approach. Um, so you can deliver the CRISPR um, gene editing um, protein as an RNA, and it'll get made into a protein by our cells. And that's a, um, a uh, another very promising approach to kind of do very, very targeted um, 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 therapy, you know, much more targeted than any other therapy that existed. And then the other major component that has come to light is the fact so that you have the RNA and that, you know, needs to go in our cells and do something. Um, but it can't just get into our cells easily. So it has to have basically be surrounded by a lipid, um, um, essentially kind of a lipid particle. Um, and that's, um, there's been a lot of interest in, you know, how to design those lipids. And, and again, that field really both the RNA and the lipid fields really um, came together um, very nicely with the COVID vaccine and, and other people's realizing that, you know, just put kind of peanut butter and jelly together and you really can make a really great sandwich that is very specific and, um, and can do all kinds of things to, to help, you know, in, in ways that we haven't pre- previously been able to do. So hopefully that wasn't too, Kind of yeah, no, that, that's yeah. Gr- great yeah. methodology and great explanation yeah. of DNA and nucleic therapeutics. Now, I guess the follow-up question to that would be, um, given that technology, what are the targets for longevity that if you could, so let's say, knock yeah. down this gene or yeah. bind to a certain protein, how do you yeah. see it playing out for longevity then? Yeah, so uh, Turn Bio is a company that um, I'm part of this um, funding collective called Vita Dow, and we can get into that in a little bit. Um, we fund, help fund a company called Turn Bio, which is doing mRNA to the Yamanaka factors, which I mentioned earlier, these kind of four factors, um, which can reprogram cells from a fibroblast or an embryonic state. They're doing like what many people are doing, where there's kind of partial reprogramming, so just kind of like turning back the clock partially, not all the way to the embryonic state. Um, so they're, they're not only doing these four Yamanaka factors, which are like CMYK, OC4. Um, I mean, I actually don't know if those are the, the you know, th- this is kind of private information. Um, but I think 
mo many people are kind of focusing on these these four factors, which Yamanaka got a Nobel Prize for, um, Ak for, KLF for, CMIC, and can't remember the other one, SOX 2 or something like this. Um, but there's, of course, many others now that people have shown to be important. And so those are those are certain class of genes, ones that would kind of reprogram the cells to a younger state. Um, I do think, you know, going after multiple pathways, of kind of the canonical pathways, autophagy pathways, mTOR pathway, you know, that could also be helpful. Um, I think people just have to see, you know, um, we're, um, um, yeah, I mean, there's just a lot of the kind of well-known pathways. And I think probably your, your best bet is to, you know, go after some of the kind of core targets of those pathways. Um, so I don't, I mean, like rapamycin, unlike metformin is a very clean drug. It's very highly targeted yeah. to, to, exactly. to mTOR. Um, what, what, I mean, what advantage would the, I mean, obviously there are a lot of advantages, but if mTOR works effectively, I mean, if rapamycin works effectively for mTOR, um, then you'd want to do a similar thing to like, uh, upregulate AMP kinase or other, other sensing, nutrient sensing, longevity related, uh, proteins. Is that what you're thinking? Yeah. I think so. I mean, I think it's, um, you know, so rapamycin is really interesting because it, um, again, I, I mentioned earlier, it kind of partially inhibits mTOR. So it kind of, it's, it's an allosteric inhibitor. So it's not um, plugging the active site of the kinase. So it's not going to just like kind of uniformly downregulate the mTOR pathway. It kind of has some specificity, but which um, part of the pathway it hits more so than others. So if you were to downregulate mTOR using an SI RNA approach or some kind of nucleic acid approach, it would, you know, it would be it may still function similar optimizing, but it may have different kind of kinetics or different kind of target profile. So, um, you know, I'm not totally clear. I mean, it's still the issue with the nucleic acid therapies, even though I said like the lipids come along and, you know, they, that's a really nice delivery vehicle. It's still not as um, easy to get the kind of broad distribution, um, not nearly as easy to get the broad like cellular distribution and body distribution as you get with small molecules, which are small and can kind of diffuse throughout the body easily. So um, I don't, I mean, maybe mTOR is not the best target again, because like you just mentioned, there's already a drug for this and, you know, it's kind of like everyone's already making good progress there. Um, but I mean, other pathways um, um, and um, certainly be fair game. I mean, the way it's going right now with the nucleic acid therapies is really going after kind of monogenic diseases like sickle cell anemia. There was a CRISPR trial. Um, I guess that wasn't necessarily, um, I think that was, that wasn't an RNA approach, but nonetheless, people are going after single monogenic diseases where, you know, you fix this one mutation, you, you know, you downregulate this one protein, you know, and it like has the desired effect. Longevity may not be the first, probably is, it's already not the first basically use case because it's, um, yeah, chronic diseases are just, yeah, harder to fix. And, you know, so I think it'll be, be yeah. a while before figure out the cocktail of things that will work. Um, but Turnbio is pretty far along. I mean, they're, so, I mean, they're, and other companies are kind of on their, on their heels. So I do think um, it will be, um, it won't be too long. So for the, for longevity or more kind of chronic disease applications. So. Well, speaking of, of Turnbio, and you mentioned this a little bit before, we, we've got so many things to do, so many fascinating topics to cover. Uh, but I wanted to make sure we talked about uh, Vita Dow and uh, what, 
What's a decentralized autonomous organization and how is it uh, helping in longevity drug discovery and other areas? Yeah. So, I mean, I think what's interesting about, I mean, a lot of people, when you hear the word crypto or decentralized or blockchain, all those things, people kind of um, are skeptical, right? They, I mean, a lot of people are skeptical. And I actually think that's what's, there's a lot of people in the longevity field where feel like we're kind of outsiders as well, right? I mean, you can't actually, you know, I'm an academic, at, you know, at university and, and, you know, you can't really use the word longevity. You have to use the word aging, right? It's like longevity sounds a little <laughs> bit too like snake oil, right? Or, I mean, certainly like anti-aging you can't use, right? So, so I, and crypto is the same thing. I think it's, um, uh, it's, you know, this field, which is providing an alternative, you know, some, most people, most of us argue it's like a more fair, you know, money system, right? Where, you know, it's outside of the government. Uh, control and anyone can do it, right? It's peer to peer. And so I think the longevity and crypto communities really have a, a, a alignment around, you know, we're kind of outsiders and not taken seriously by the mainstream folks. And so, um, you know, that's, um, you know, that's was part of the basis for, for, um, for forming VitaDAO. And um, the, um, essentially we're a funding collective. So the DAO decentralized autonomous organization, we're not like registered in Delaware or we're, you know, it's, it's a, uh, it's lives on the Ethereum blockchain. So it's like, a you know, it lives in the metaverse. Um, so again, it's, it's a new kind of new kind of concept. Um, and people, um, like I said, it's a collective where people put their money together and um, to fund research. And it's a nonprofit. So meaning like any kind of profits that would come out of any drugs we would develop, you just put back into the treasury to fund more research. So it's not a, you know, it's, it's, uh, intentionally not trying to be something that would be a for-profit company. And um, the other, I mean, the other thing too, is that we have a token. So a token helps us basically govern the way um, to make the decisions on what gets funded. So um, it's called the Vita to Vita token, and you can get it on various exchanges. Um, And the idea is, you know, ownership in that token um, allows you to say, to, to, to kind of chart the course of how, how we how we spend the money, and so to me that's a really exciting way. It's a democratized way. It's a, um, and what's really cool, I mean, compared to you know having been in the traditional um, you know academic system and you know the traditional way of doing things for many years is really you just get people of all different perspectives. You know, a lot of people in in the kind of crypto world are anonymous, and so you don't know know who they are. They don't know what their credentials are. So it really makes a much more um, you know, kind of flat structure. And I think you really have to kind of listen to people's arguments. Um, so, so, so for example, what's been really interesting. So, so Pfizer is, has, has just put, uh, has just contributed funds to beat it out recently. And there was a big, a big announcement on that. And so we have representatives from Pfizer in our organization and they're coming in with their, um, with their traditional approach and, and, you know, people like me push back and say, okay, well, this is how Pfizer does, does it. And, you know, but we're, we're not necessarily operating that way. Right. So I think, you know, it's been interesting to see, but they also have value perspective. It's like, well, okay, you can, you can be a dreamer. You can propose you're going to, you know, cure these diseases with these crazy strategies, but there is this kind of, you know, business reality or kind of scientific reality that we need to live in. So it's been fun to kind of have those worlds collide. And I think, um, Again, where one is not clearly better than the other one, and and I think that's leading to some better outcomes and better conversation because, um, yeah, just you know, again, it's not a hierarchical driven system. So, yeah, yeah, I like the idea you said that uh, Vita Dow is not a like registered Delaware C corp or anything. Yeah. It's a nonprofit, but is it registered 
as a legal presence at all. So it, it doesn't no. exist within our legal framework because it's no. entirely running on smart contracts and exactly, exactly. In the crypto yeah. space, which is fascinating. It's uh, yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's amazing that you've been able to do this. And um, what are the, what are the advantages with this over traditional drug development and what are the challenges? Obviously Pfizer's interested and they're, they're becoming a part of it, which is wonderful. So how how is this going to succeed where other drug com- other drug projects fail that are driven by, you know, purely for profit for uh, Pfizer, let's say? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I think we're I mean, we're able to do kind of different experiments. Right. I mean, I think that's maybe one way. I mean, we'll see. I mean, time will tell, you know, of course. Um, but I think one thing because of because we're people are coming with different ideas, you know, we're able to act in a in a different way. And so, like, for example, we funded. You know, we we funded a film, which is, you know, hopefully um, going to be on Netflix soon, where uh, it's just about longevity, telling kind of the story of longevity and how people are doing biohacking. And it's really kind of an awareness piece. Uh, uh, so kind of definitely media, media marketing, stuff like that is, you know, is, I think it's important to our mission. And so um, that's not something Pfizer would do, right? They would not fund a film, right? Um, that's not something that, you know, a traditional biotech VC would do. So I think we realize the power of is creating awareness around what we're doing. And, um, you know, really ultimately all the big tech companies are all, are all, you know, media companies. They're, they're not only, you know, doing R and D, but they're, they're getting the message out. So I think awareness is a huge part of what we're doing. Um, we're, we're actually, um, in talks to create a journal, an academic journal, um, and um, that's um, so that's another way which can kind of establish legitimacy, you know, given the given the um, you know, intimate connection between publishing and funding, you know, the you really the right. The funding drives the publishing and, and then, you know, kind of feeds back on itself. So I think we've got to be involved in both those activities um, and, and um, gain legitimacy in those areas. So, um, yeah, I think it's I think there's many ways, many things we can do that are kind of outside. You know, it's certainly not a biotech VC firm. I mean, it's a it's yeah. A, um, it's we can take on many different things um, that will um, you know help um, sustain the organization hopefully so and and just to be clear you're you're actually going to be developing intellectual property that would be licensed yep. as nfts non-fungible tokens sure. and exactly. so yep. it, it can actually profit and and yep. sustain itself and and the investors and the patients that participate and definitely. The other thing I wanted to underscore, especially for this audience in this program, um, people are listening to this because they're interested in longevity for themselves, for their families. They want to understand it. And VitaDAO is a way to actually participate in it. So any Mm -hmm. person can go, uh, you know, with a little knowledge, if uh, with cryptocurrency, they can purchase VitaDAO tokens. And when by purchasing tokens, they become part of the VitaDAO community community yep. and can vote on uh drug development and can participate fully as a member of it so it's a it's really a unique thing that, that the cryptocurrency makes possible the the true democratization of research and science and knowledge uh it's it's, it's really fascinating and and Thanks. Uh, yeah and i think one of the I mean, several of us in what we're calling the DSI community decentralized science community um several of us are interested in this concept that token wouldn't only be kind of a governance token and voting on things. We would actually be 
you know, potentially gating access to, to medicines. That doesn't sound right, but essentially it'd be, you know, the token would do more to have much more utility for people, you know, give them access to, you know, discounts on supplements, things where, um, you know, um, it would, yeah, like I said, the simplest thing is to, like give the token much more utility as to why you'd want to, you know, be part of the community and, and deliver a lot more value, um, uh, for, for, for both sides, for, for the people who own the tokens as, as well as for Vita Dow and other DSI organizations. So, um, I think you can definitely currently it's, you know, just voting. That's not maybe that's, that's great. And we're excited about that, but I think we have many more ideas in the future about how to make, um, you know, crypto much more, um, much more of an active participation. So I think that's, um, you know, that's really, that's really what we're, we're excited about. So. And I think VitaDAO is the leading the leading organization of this type in the longevity space. Are there other organizations in other science and healthcare similar to VitaDAO that this is rolling out now? Definitely, yeah. So, so Molecule um, is an organization um, based out of Switzerland that's uh, um, is helping launch DAOs. Um, so, there's LabDAO, there's SciDAO, there's AthenaDAO. Um, so, LabDAO is kind of a general purpose. Um, at least currently computational is a dry lab focused um, um, kind of general purpose um, infrastructure DAO, lab lab infrastructure DAO. Sci DAO is for psychedelic um, research. Athena DAO is for women's health issues. Um, there's other longevity ones, the Nine Lives DAO. Um, there are maybe a few other more fledgling ones um, that are emerging. Um, Nine Lives is for, I think, for CAP, you know, the, the idea that probably we can get to we can get to human health if we focus on our pets first. You know, people love their pets. You know, there's, um, you know, Loyal, the company Loyal, which is focusing on dogs, which has gotten a pretty good amount of traction. Um, so I think it's a great strategy. So I think definitely, I mean, I mean, I think it's definitely the other part about being, you know, a nonprofit and, and just, I think in general, people don't really preach about crypto. There's definitely more of a we're all working together vibe. And there's actually this kind of acronym wag me. Um, we're all going to make it. Um, so like people just really, it's much more of a kind of collaborative environment than, you know, the traditional biotech world. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yep. that's exciting. Uh, yep. Well, we, we just have a little bit of time left, maybe one or two questions. I I'd love to sure. ask you um, other than the things we've caught, co- we've covered. Uh, <laughs> What what are one or two of the most exciting areas of longevity right now that we haven't talked about that that are not working on? Right, you said. Um, yeah, well, you mentioned the Yamanaka factors and the partial yeah, that's, genetic yeah, reprogramming. Exactly. Yep, yep. Yeah. So that's I mean that's one. Um, you know, I think that that we're not working on. There's. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the pets idea is great. I think the pets idea is, you know, focusing on the pet. I mean, if your goal is to just help pets, that's actually great too. But um, the idea that, you know, you can get to market faster, you can prove things, you know, um, certainly on, you know, I think that's that's a great, great strategy. I do think I, I kind of already said this earlier, the digital health stuff where, I mean, we have like one project that I'm trying to get off the ground. Um, I just think, I just think digital health is, you know, there's this kind of famous, um, you know, Mark Andreessen quote, you know, software is eating the world, right? And I do think, I think that, you know, I kind of already said this, but, you know, the medical kind of establishment, I, which I've been long part of whole, all my families and, you know, in medicine and doctors and all this stuff. I mean, I just think they're kind of a little bit of sleep at the wheel of what's going to happen with software. Um, I think so. I think software in general is going to, you know, take over healthcare just as, you know, it takes over every field. So, um, 
So that's probably the biggest area where I don't have enough of our efforts that I would like to spend more time. So, and, mm-hmm. and I think everyone who's doing working in that space is, you know, I'm cheering them on. So, yeah. Well, yeah. One more take home thing for people. If uh, everyone listening, if they could do one thing to improve their longevity, what, what would you pick to start with? Uh, well, one, th- I mean, actually probably the one thing that maybe people wouldn't say, and well, though maybe a less common answer. I do think the social interactions, like I think it's underappreciated how much, mm-hmm. how human, you know, how much basically our kind of psychosocial well-being influences our body physiology. The one, like the one, um, I have a colleague, um, do you, how much time we have? Like, um, uh, or we need to- like 10 minutes. Yeah. Oh, 10 minutes. Some time. okay. So, so I have a colleague, um, old colleague of mine that's at NYU, Bradley Miller, who like, I, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say I didn't know stuff like this, but he, I mean, he showed this video where, where mice came together. He had, he had a serotonin, um, like a real time serotonin reporter and he had a bunch of mice. And as soon as they walked together, their brains just lit up with serotonin. Um, uh-huh. and I never, I've just never forgot that video because it just shows that, you know, we need to be together physically, um, to be, you know, for, for our health. Um, and it's just, it's just as basic, it's just basic biology basically. And so I do think we definitely need diet and exercise and those things, but I do think, um, you know, human connections are, um, you know, just very underrated. So I, I appreciate you bringing that up because it's a major yeah. component. Of resilience, yep. Uh, inter social interaction, uh, what I refer to as emotional nourishment. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's a, a very important aspect of uh, mental health, and I think it will turn out to be a very important part of longevity. Definitely, yeah, definitely. Yeah, there's just another paper out about that. How how uh, emotional loneliness is a risk factor for all these chronic diseases and ultimately yep. longevity. And their take home message was, uh, you know, get get a make friends, uh, have a mm-hmm. partner if you have a partner. If you're in mm-hmm. politics, get a dog, but get something. Right, right, you know, <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> but make that connection, even if it's with an animal, with a pet. You know, but. Uh, do that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, th- Tim, how can people reach you on social media? What's the best way for people to follow you? Yeah. So I, I have, you know, a fairly generic name. So I insert my middle initial in there. So I'm Tim R. Peterson pretty much everywhere. I think my LinkedIn is actually kind of the opposite. It's Peterson, Tim R. Um, but kind of always, um, I, yeah, like I said, I include that kind of R uh, middle initial does to stand out a little bit, you know, like Stephen A. Smith is like the the famous like sportscaster guy on on ESPN, and also generic generic uh, generic name guy, but but you know puts that A in there, and so at least you know no it's him. Um, and um, my companies are like I said, are Healthspan Technologies, Healthspan.dev, uh, BioIO.tech. That the the BioIO.tech is not live currently, but we'll we'll have that live soon. Um, and yeah, social media, like I said, everything on social media and stuff is just Tim R. Peterson. Um, and that's my emails as well, bioio.tech. And, um, so yeah, you can reach me. Yeah. Anyway, many ways. So yeah. Sounds good. We'll, we'll make sure people know about all of those ways of connecting. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for being on the program, Tim. And we appreciate the the work you're doing. And uh, we'll we'll look for you on Vitadow also. Say hi. Thank you. Definitely. Yeah, thanks. Grateful. 
This is for general information and educational purposes only, and it's not intended to constitute or substitute for medical advice or counseling. The practice of medicine or the provision of health care, diagnosis, or treatment, or the creation of a physician, patient, or clinical relationship. The use of this information is at their own, uh, own user's risk. If you find this to be on the value of, please hit that like button to subscribe to support the work that we do on this channel. And we take the, your suggestions and advice very seriously. So please let us know what you'd like to see on this channel. Thanks for watching and we hope to see you next time.